what I like to do is conduct like what I call a listening tour in those first few months and really ask kind of the same set of questions to everyone so you can get a really good overall kind of health check on the organization. And the key focus points are to first build trust, right? And just be vulnerable as a DNI leader. Let them know you're just having these conversations to get to know them, to get to know what the biggest opportunities are for growth, and then kind of compile it together. Hey everyone, welcome to Intent to Impact, the ERG podcast. This show is designed to help DEI and ERG leaders build and scale impactful employee resource groups. I'm your host, Demaybe Igbuna, co-founder of Chesi, and we're joined today by Allison Crawford, Senior Manager of ERG Enterprise Strategy at LinkedIn. Allison, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Yeah. You're wonder- you have my walk-up music <laughs> What's your song? Your go-to song? My song? Well, it depends. It really depends on the day. I also would like to request maybe some voice auto-tuning, trying to sound like cute, but in charge. Okay. okay. Let, me <laughs> Let me run through my mind who we can auto-tune you for. Thanks. Well, I'm super excited to have you on the show. I know that you're currently supporting the ERGs at LinkedIn, but you've previously worked at Ripple, Uber, and Yelp. Could you share a bit about your journey with our audience? Let's just kind of start there. For sure. Yeah. I'm based in San Francisco. I have almost 15 years in the tech space, 10 years focused on diversity and inclusion work. Previously, I was a sales leader with experience both in US, North America, and then also did a tour and lived for a few years over in the UK as a sales leader. My DNI work has mostly been here in the US, but I've spent a lot of time developing programming and EMEA. APAC, LATAM. So it can be really tempting to have a US focused lens on this work. But, you know, as DNI leaders, it's critical to pause and think about what it means to belong in other major markets as well, too. So I'm really grateful to have that experience. I think, you know, we're getting better at this, but there's there's always room to grow. So yeah, um, yeah at the moment at LinkedIn, I've been here for about uh, coming up on two years, which is really nice. exciting. Where in the UK did you live? I actually didn't know that. I lived in London. Oh, nice. Okay. I studied abroad in Manchester. So I, have that know that. <laughs> I know. So now that you're at LinkedIn, can you just give us a quick overview of the ERG program, like the number of ERGs, the structure, and then how do you support them in your role as senior manager? Yes. So LinkedIn has 11 employee resource groups. Most of them are what I call the known knowns that are focused on race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, and so on. But we also have some special ones. And the one that I would call out kind of top of mind is Embrace. And Embrace focuses on unique identities of displaced immigrants, refugees, and first-gen employees and allies. I'm also really proud to share we added our 11th employee resource group called Habibi back in June of last year which was created to support our North African, Arab, and Middle Eastern employees. So as you'd imagine, this group has been incredibly supportive for our communities, given the recent events that happened in the Middle East the first week of October. When we take a look at the numbers kind of as a whole, LinkedIn has around 15,000 employees globally. And I am really proud to share that just over 50% of our employees are a member of at least one employee resource group. 
I think the industry average is hovers around 30%, but I'm really proud to have at least half of our organization as a member of at least one. Also, what sets us apart is we have over 700 employees that have stepped up to take on leadership positions. So that could mean that they're running an, employee, an entire region, such as EMEA, or even just one office, like our office in Omaha, Nebraska. So I manage all 11 groups, and I focus primarily on those 700 employee resource group leaders and our 22 executive sponsors that support those groups. Okay. You are a super busy lady. 700 <laughs> leaders is no small feat. I talk yeah. to DEI managers who have like 700 members. So in that yeah. case, <laughs> leaders. it's all, yeah, it yeah. just, it, it gets better and better. As I've been doing this work, yeah, I definitely have had those roles within organizations where it's just a handful of people. And then now it's been really rewarding to kind of see this grow over my time in the space. Cool. Well, speaking of like your past experience, that's part of the reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast is because I know that you've worked at so many companies, so many top tech companies. So I'm curious, how do you approach stepping into a new role and supporting the ERGs at a new company? I think, especially with a lot of reshuffling in the DEI space right now, people are curious on how they can make the greatest impact within the first 90 days. So can you share your approach or your strategy that, you, that you've worked with? Yeah, definitely. And such a such a great question. There's so many folks that have moved into this industry. They've started out as ERG leaders or culture champions on top of their day jobs. And they're like, you know what? I want to do this full time. I'm going to make that leap. And it's been really rewarding to mentor so many of those individuals over the last few years, especially over the last three or four years. So thankfully, in addition to working full time in tech over the last decade or so, I've had the opportunity to consult with a number of companies within other verticals, such as apparel, F&B, and two standouts in my experience were with KFC. And we wrote out their extensive ERG playbooks from scratch in partnership with their DNI team. And I also hosted some meaningful summits and programming for the ERG leaders and executive sponsors over at Under Armour at their HQ in Baltimore. And when I reflect on kind of those experiences and getting kind of out of that tech bubble, because I think, you know, tech is very different, right? We're only a few decades old. There's a lot of money that goes around. There's a lot of movement that goes around within the organizations. You know, we're always kind of reinventing what we stand for. Um, so it's been really rewarding to kind of go into apparel or go into an F&B company, you know, like KFC that's been around for a while. But they all kind of have, I, I always have kind of two different big rocks that I that I survey when I'm going into these organizations, either as a consultant or as a full-time employee. The first one is, what is the demographic intersection of the organization considering the vertical number of employees, office locations, and overall cultural health of the company. As you would imagine, this can play greatly into what we can easily be achieved, what can easily be achieved right out of the gate, and then what will never be achieved. <laughs> like we know that we will never, like we just have to be realistic. And yeah. I think a lot of times people, you know, they like to look at the demographic or the numbers and they're like the demographics as a whole. And they're like, oh, we only have X percent of women or we have X percent of underrepresented people or people of color. But you have to really take that realistic approach. And yeah. 
Um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, just kind of based on your recent conversations as well, too, when it's like just being real, <laughs> being realistic. Yeah. What can be <laughs> well, I'm even thinking about like our ICP when it comes to our platform is typically like tech companies. And I think we had just had this mindset of all oh, tech companies are so progressive because they're new in the space. They're doing a lot of DEI work. And then you kind of get there and you're like, oh, they operate more old school than you typically imagine. So I think it's just a matter of like taking everything into consideration as opposed to just the industry vertical. It's the cultural health, it's the number of employees, it's the locations of their offices, it's their workforce makeup. There's so many things to consider when trying to think like, oh, is this something that would fit into to their strategy? Yeah. And just reflecting on my experience four years at Uber, when we think of cultural health, right? Yeah. When I joined the organization, it felt very different than when I left four years later. And that was really because we had a talented diversity and inclusion team that was very, very much so supported by the executive team that made a lot of shifts and changes. So I would say when you're taking a look at cultural health, sometimes it can be you know, frustrating or be like, oh, well, things will never change. They've kind of always been like this, but I would say to remain optimistic as much as possible. The second thing I'd like to reflect on is the current and potential outcomes when it comes to what's been attempted in the past. So I asked myself a few questions like, are we starting like from square one? Like, have we never acknowledged even kind of basics like International Women's Day or right now we're in Black History Month? Like, are we starting really from square one where we've just completely neglected all things diversity and inclusion? Or have there been efforts in the past that totally failed? Like, we tried to host something and everyone just showed up mad. And like, what was that like? I have to, like, so to speak, kind of take vitals on the organization and provide treatment. And then, of course really track those trends and make sure that we shift. So, you know, when we do the homework to see what's worked and what hasn't worked in the past, remain optimistic, but then kind of make those strong recommendations. Yeah. I'm curious from your perspective. So I guess your two big rocks are like demographic intersections and then current state, which do you think is more important? Or if you could rank one, what do you think is most important? Like considering the impact that you can have like in your DEI strategy? Yeah, I think getting to know the history from a lot of different vantage points is important. I think you you always have those people that want to raise their hand first and kind yeah. of share what their experience is. Um, but it's important to recognize where that person's coming from, kind of what their level is, what their social capital is within the organization. So yeah, recognizing kind of how that's made an impact in the past. So I don't know if I could kind of weigh one versus the other. I think it depends on really the size of the organization. If you're talking about joining a 500 person company, like I was at before LinkedIn, I was really grateful to have a head of diversity and inclusion role at LinkedIn. I was running all the programming from scratch, which was really fun, but it was also really lonely. I didn't have a team for for most of that time. I had a really supportive people team that partnered with me with an L&D and TA, but, and now being part of a really large diversity and inclusion team that's 30 plus people at LinkedIn, it really just depends on kind of who's in your corner and then who you can recruit to be in your corner too. Gotcha. And I guess that's a good segue to this next question. So I guess stepping into a new role, you're always looking for your allies. You're always looking for people that can help push your work forward. So how do you approach building relationships with key stakeholders, but also ERG leaders? And what are some of those like tactical approaches that you take? 
Yes. Oh, the stakeholder question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a word that I love and despise at the same time because so much of this work is based on people opting in to do work on top of their day job. So again, going back to my two points, there's a theme here. The first point is find the people that truly understand that razor thin line between passion and advocacy. There's a very big difference between passion and advocacy. We all have some level of passion for this type of work, but it's the folks that are true advocates that actually get the work done. And mm -hmm. this is easier said than done. When we are looking at folks that are passionate, that could be during moments where external, you know, media or sources or events in history are taking place and they stand up. We all know them, right? They're like, I'm passionate about this work. I'm going to help you get this thing done. But as soon as those headlines die down, <laughs> where did they go? <laughs> where did that budget go? It's the advocates that really do keep the lights on and come with a more strategic approach. And that's really a key, key uh, focus point there. Got you. And how are you identifying those folks? I think the biggest one is, and I'll talk a little bit about this kind of over the next few talking points, but it's also around doing that listening tour mm. and asking people these big open-ended questions. Some yeah. of my favorite questions are, you know, do you remember the time that you, like the first time you felt a culture that was different than your own and that could be or you felt excluded and we've all experienced being the only at yeah. some point in our lives some people have that feeling every time they leave the house <laughs> some yeah. people it was just that one time in kindergarten right. <laughs> and they haven't felt since. So I think it's meeting people where they're at and understanding that the strongest advocates aren't necessarily the ones that are the only in every single room. Sometimes yeah. it's actually the opposite. So that actually leads in really well into my second point to maybe, which is checking your bias when it comes to building out those relationships, just because your brain wants to make these shortcuts. You're like, oh, this person is around my age. They live in my neighborhood, they might have their kids go to the same school that my kid goes to. Does not right. mean that they are going to advocate for the same, you know, I would say work that you really feel passionate about. And our brain wants to make those shortcuts. I don't know if that's ever happened to you in the past. Where you've made well, for, sure. <laughs> for sure. I think it happens to everyone. And I think that's a natural thing. But as you said, it's something to be cautious of because those could be end up being your biggest allies, your biggest champions. I'm curious when it comes to bringing like key stakeholders into the fold, what are you, who are the key stakeholders? Is that like your C-suite team or is that middle management? Like who are no, those? No, definitely not them. <laughs> <Can't really lie. laughs> I've just been proven wrong time and time again. If you would have asked me this question, you know, a few years ago, I'd be like, oh yes, CEO, everyone yeah. that reports to that CEO, those are your yeah. people, they're going to get things done. I think to some extent, that's still the case, but really it's the people that come to work that feel like they are invested in their day job. They're the best in their room within yeah. their day jobs. They're bought into the company's mission and goals and outcomes. Those are the folks that 
want to um, continue to improve the company's organizational health, I would say, from a cultural perspective, if that makes sense. So I think it's the people that are really invested. The people that are top performers are going to be your strongest um, stakeholders. And that could mean that they're at the VP level. That could be that this is their first job out of college and they're a sourcer within the recruiting team. But it's the people that are really passionate about the work their careers as a whole, because those are the folks that are going to want the best outcomes for everyone, regardless of how they identify. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Moving into the next question in terms of specifically ERGs. So a lot of times when DEI practitioners step into a new role, one of the first things that they look to do is like, how can I revamp the ERG program? How can I start to get more people engaged? How can I build that membership? Can you give us some tactics that you've implemented to revitalize or launch ERGs within the first few months at a new company? Yeah, definitely. So usually within an organization, they'll have just a handful of, if you remember at the beginning, I called like the known knowns, like women's groups have been around for a really long time. <laughs> Ones that focus on same-sex relationships, gender identity, sexual orientation, those have been around a long time. You know, when we take a look at those groups or race and ethnicity, those are around, but how active are they? And what does that program look and feel like? So I, what I like to do is conduct like what I call a listening tour in those first few months and really ask kind of the same set of questions to everyone so you can get a really good overall kind of health check on the organization. And the key focus points are to first build trust, right? And just be vulnerable as a DNI leader. Let them know, you know, you're just having these conversations to get to know them, to get to know what the biggest opportunities are for growth, and then kind of compile it together. You want to secondly, like find the talent goes back to the people, again, that are the strongest performers within their role that are really invested in making the organization a better place. Um, find the people that are not only talented, but they also have the bandwidth yeah. <laughs> to provide long-term success. So oftentimes you'll get people there like, yes, I can totally do this work with you. I'm so excited. I'm going to lead this group. And then they'll just ghost you. Yeah. <laughs> That's just really rough. So try not to take things personally. I have this tactic that I usually use if people are ghosting me, which fortunately happens. I mean, we have 700 ERG leaders. I call it like the easy out. And what we'll do is we'll send a note to them and be like, hey, do maybe I know that you've known, I've noticed that you haven't really shown up to any of our monthly calls for, <laughs> you know, the last few months, like would now be a good time maybe to pause the work. And I always keep that door open and come back when it's a better time. And people are usually just thrilled to see this because they're like, yes, thank, thank you for you. giving me the option. <laughs> no one wants to send the note being like, right. hey, you know how I said I was going to support the LGBT yeah. community? Yeah, I'm not really doing that anymore. <laughs> Can't really find the time. Sorry about it. Yeah. Like maybe when there's another Supreme Court decision yeah. that like, you know, pops up into my newsfeed, I'll call you. But no, just you don't take it personally. It's one of the four agreements and you just move on, but you give people that easy out. Finally, the last piece is finding the currency that allows people to feel seen and heard. So do we need to start a bonus program? I've started two cash bonus programs in my career, actually three, three cash bonus programs in my career to pay ERG leaders. Right. Do we need to start that? Do we need monthly spotlights in a company all hands? Do we need 
executive engagement with these DNI leaders. We need to sit down and have them have a roundtable once a month, once a quarter. How are we going to quote unquote, I'm using air quotes, it's a podcast, okay? How are we quote unquote paying people for the work? And then how are we going to follow through on that long term? So it's not just flash in the pan. So just to kind of recap there, like building trust, finding the talent, finding people that have that bandwidth, and then finally finding that currency. Okay, going back to building trust, because I know you had previously mentioned listening tours, I feel Mm -hmm. like these go hand in hand in terms of like having conversations with ERG leaders, figuring out what they need and figuring out what you're actually capable of doing. What does this look like for you in practice? Like when you have a conversation with an ERG leader, how are you opening that up and getting them to give them give you your honest or sorry, getting them to give you their honest feedback? Yeah, that's a great question. I think going into as much of like an active listening mode as, as possible. Like I try not to share too much of like, this is what I'm looking to accomplish, or this is what I've done in the past. It's more of like, what motivates you and what's been a really standout moment for you in this work? We just actually earlier this morning hosted a call with our global co-chairs. Again, that's that those 22 folks that run our our 11 ERGs. And we did a writing exercise actually with them. And we you know, put on some music, we turned off the cameras and we asked them to write down a moment that really made them, it sounds very cheesy, but made them smile, like made them just like beam from the work and reflect on that. And that might've been two years ago. That might've been two days ago, but having them flex that muscle and kind of release that serotonin (laughs) in their systems goes a long way. So I always like to, you know, capitalize on the positive, but then also obviously not turn a blind eye to when people are truly experiencing some type of, you know, unfair treatment. That's also really important, unfortunately, to our work as well, too. As a person stepping into this role, you're really looking to balance quick wins with like the longer term strategic goals of your DEI initiatives. How do you manage balancing this in a new role? I know that you want to make a good impression with like your key stakeholders, but you also want to make sure that the health of their DEI program is kind of growing over time. So how are you, how do you approach this? Yeah. As far as like quick wins, I would say anytime an organization has those kind of big touch points, like an all hands, and, you know, I've been at companies that have all hands every week. I have been at organizations where they're once a month. And then sometimes there's those kind of more consistent comms, like in the newsletter form. I think you get those quick wins by understanding what the comms cadence is within the organization and seeing what goes out to everyone and making your mark in that you know, avenue or that platform, but not in a performative way, which is really hard, like making it well known that, you know, this is now a priority. This is now going to be a focus for the long term and get people used to seeing that type of language within those avenues. So that could be like an all hands spotlight where you're talking about, you know, great work that employees are doing that could be recognizing, you know, more of that traditional programming like heritage months. But I think the quick wins are just laying the groundwork down where it's like, this is stuff that we talk about now. (laughs) I didn't know how to talk about it in the past, but this is stuff that we talk about and this is why it's important. We often talk about like those dibs wise or DEI wise or DNI. It's different, you know, the acronym changes every week, but finding your why is a great way to open up dialogue as well too. My why has has changed over the years based on yeah. my identity, based on my age, based on where I've lived. So it's opening up that dialogue as well too. And I feel like that's super important going back to building trust of like 
a lot of employees, I think, are skeptical of just DEI in general. They don't know if this is going to be a cyclical thing and we're just doing this because it's the flavor of the month or if this is something that our company is truly investing in. So I think there's just kind of that balance of like, okay, we want to ingrain DEI into everything that we're doing, but I also want to show you that I'm actively making changes. Yeah. There will always, always be people that question this work that think like, why can't you just come to work every day and do your job? I don't mind those people because it's job security for me. Right. right. Like, <laughs> if everyone was not into this work, I would have a job. Okay. So, good. Question it. I'm ready. I'm yeah. ready. I was in sales before this. So I think, you know, keep the skeptics close to you as yeah. well. Keep them, you know, make sure they, they're keeping you on your toes because mm-hmm. it will challenge you as a, as a DNI leader as well, too. Your answer to this might kind of go into the skeptics and people just being skeptical of this work generally, but what are some of the key challenges you've encountered when you join a new company as a DEI practitioner, particularly within the first 90 days? It's going back to when you're learning about past approaches Mm -hmm. or past projects. And sometimes it's really hard for people to get past what has not been successful. And we are now in a time where people aren't really staying in their roles for 5, 10, 15 years. People are shifting their jobs often. We just had this dialogue actually within my team at LinkedIn that so many people are new to the organization they don't know that we have 11 employee resource groups. They might've seen it quickly in their onboarding, but they don't know the magic <laughs> that that we're creating. So I think it's going back to encouraging fresh starts, encouraging people to open their eyes to a, a different approach. And that's easier said than done. But it's as DNI leaders, it's really about standing our ground and giving that why and showing vulnerability as well, too. So in closing, can you just give us your top three pieces of advice for DI practitioners who are embarking on a new role within an organization? Yeah, only three? No, just kidding. I will say I'll give you three, but anyone that's, you know, decided to listen this far along <laughs> in the episode, you can always reach out to me personally as well, too, on LinkedIn. I'm happy to continue the conversation here because I know what it's like to start a new role and it can be really overwhelming. So the first first one is just like to pace yourself. We want to do all the work all at once and see results. And it's just not going to happen. So pacing yourself looks and feels very different to different folks, depending on what their circumstances are, if they travel, if they have, you know, caregiver responsibilities, but pacing yourself, taking the time to write down what that looks and feels like to you is really critical. The second one is work on your writing skills. This job has now turned into a comms role. There's big comms component. You will be asked to write out things maybe for executives. You might be asked to write things on behalf of the whole organization. You might be, a lot of my job is crisis comms. So when really, really dark and terrible things happen in this world, I'm writing a draft and showcasing support and it needs to sound good. It needs to sound moving and supportive. It cannot sound at all performative. So work on your writing skills is the second one. And last but not least is find the best way to take in what's happening in the world without completely burning out your mental health. So we have to know this, you know, plays into the second piece here, but like we have to know before anyone else when something happens, 
how are you taking that in and how is it not completely draining you? So again, these are easier said than done. I can't say that I'm like an expert, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm working on it. I'm working on it. But I would say that those are kind of the three, three elements that I would focus on. I'm hearing that comms piece more and more. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, it's yeah. Really leaning on the DEI person to write their crisis. You have to write. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You have to write. And there's different ways to get quote unquote good at that. I would say yeah. like utilize your network, get read as much as you can find, you know, your own voice as a writer. If you're writing on behalf of an executive, understand and kind of read everything you get your hands on from past posts that they've, you know, put out there on platforms or, you know, other comps that they've, they've written. So you can really get that voice down. Yeah. I know that was supposed to be our last question, but I actually have a follow-up. Really? Oh, really? Okay, fine. I will take all the questions to support you guys. Now that we're on this topic of like almost like crisis management, I'm curious. I know that y'all recently implemented like a Habibi ERG, especially very timely with the events that happened last October. I'm curious the role of ERGs in crisis management. Like how do you allow space for the members of that ERG to kind of come together and grieve, but also this did seem to be a very complicated issue. So you have to, I guess, balance like the need for their community, but also create the safe spaces, but also like let people (laughs) get their work done. Right. It's like, it's two parts. Okay, great. So when we take a look at the crisis support piece of employee resource groups and DNI leaders, it is now more of my job than it ever has been. And I don't see that unfortunately changing. I will say when you take a look at us taking in the acts of violence against the black community, you see things being passed in the Supreme Court that take away reproductive rights for women or people that are in same sex relationships or acts yeah. of violence against Asian hate. Like, um, and then when you take a look at things that happen abroad, like we did in the Middle East, the ERGs are the first place that people go for support. Yeah. And it's critical that we are training our ERG leaders to know what they're on the hook for and what they are absolutely not on the hook for. And I'm very protective of them because I don't want them to feel like they have to be 100% that voice that provides yeah. support. And support can look and feel so different based on what's happened, what's continuing to happen. So it's a non-negotiable that they have to work with myself and my team to provide communication and to hold those spaces. So I've hosted, unfortunately, but fortunately, a number of what I call support circles for people in the community that need that care in times of need. And the support circles have rules. They're not just an open mic. They have, you know, intentional Invites that are sent to specific demographics to provide that support. Sometimes they're open to allies and sometimes they're really not open to allies. And I would say this is kind of more on the advanced level these days of getting it right. But I'm always happy to to open up dialogue and share best practices because I've done we've we've made mistakes. I always have a saying, I never I never like to make the same mistake twice. So but that's a huge part of huge part of the role. And I'm glad that you threw in that bonus question yeah. that you didn't give me any prep for it. That's great. Yeah. Hopefully that answer. I, I do <laughs> think that is something that is super top of mind right now. It's like, there's so yeah. much. We could do a whole, you could do a whole episode on that as well. Too. Really, <laughs> yeah. Seriously. I, I'm not signing up for it, but you can send me the link when someone else does it. 
<laughs> we'll do. We'll do. Well, Allison, thank you so much for joining us on Intent to Impact. Can of you course. tell our audience where they can find you? Find me? Oh, I don't know. No, just kidding. I am based in San Francisco. I am on LinkedIn, of course. And that's the best way to find me. I would say that I am good at getting back to people. I would say it's a stretch goal to be better at getting back to people. So send me a message on LinkedIn, add me on LinkedIn. If you are in San Francisco or if you're in the Bay Area, LinkedIn's offices are so beautiful. So I'm going to, I'm just going to go throw that out there. Pandemic, pandemic, come and have lunch. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Allison. Of course. 